Exposing the Illegal Empire with Shane Britton. Welcome back to the podcast. Over the past couple of episodes, we've heard from the OECD as well as from law enforcement experts, but really I wanted to focus and better explore the links between this illegal trade that we're looking at and terrorism. I couldn't think of anyone better than the esteemed worldwide terrorism expert, Professor Rowan Gunaratna. When I first joined the Australian government many years ago, perhaps more years than I care to admit, I was given a copy of the books written by Professor Gunaratna and told they were the only authoritative source to learn about extremism, al-Qaeda and radicalization. Since then, it's been my absolute honor to be able to learn directly from this brilliant man, who we call Prof, and work with him on better understanding terrorism from around the world. Prof, thanks so much for joining me on this podcast. Would you mind giving the listeners a quick rundown on your background and what you're currently doing? I am a professor of security studies at the Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. I am also the founder of Singapore's International Center for Political Violence and Terrorism Research. I have worked extensively in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East. I also served at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point uh, at their Combating Terrorism Center. I also graduated from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where I, I was mentored by Paul Wilkinson, who founded the discipline of terrorism research. And my PhD was supervised by Bruce Hoffman, who is a leading U.S. specialist. So I had the great fortune of working with good specialists. But I also had the great fortune of working with people like you, Shane. Thank you so much, Prof. Um, and and I'm sure it's a step down from esteemed colleagues to work with someone like me, but it's been a real pleasure to learn from you and to share some of the wonderful experiences that we have over the last few years. Um, so thank you again for joining us on the podcast. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is really to explore the links between illegal trade, which is what this podcast is focused on, and terrorism all around the world. I've read the attacks in Paris in 2015 were funded by the illegal tobacco trade. What could you tell our listeners about that? Terrorist lifeblood is finance. And the king of terrorist finance is illicit trade. It is not only ISIS or the Islamic State, but also Al-Qaeda and the Lebanese Hezbollah that traded in cigarettes. In fact, the FBI working with uh, RCMP in Canada, uh, they detected a very sophisticated cigarette smuggling network in North America. Similarly, the European services have detected similar networks in Europe. So I want to share with you that tobacco and cigarettes is one of the key areas where threat groups use to generate money. You can generate a lot of money. And I can tell you of similar cases in the Southeast Asian region where terrorists have done that too. Right. And and why tobacco? Why do you think the terrorists are are choosing to smuggle tobacco? It is because the profits are very high. And also the cigarettes and tobacco can move with less attention. Say if a threat group is engaged in smuggling, say, narcotics or chemical, biological, radiological material, or if they are doing human smuggling operations, or if they are moving cultural artifacts, antiquities and curios, or they are moving precious metals or precious minerals, there will be greater attention. 
in the case of cigarettes and tobacco there are already well established couriers routes that they can exploit yeah right and and something i've discussed previously is the, the concern of course is if you do have one of those channels if you have a route between two countries to move goods without customs attention or without law enforcement attention it might be tobacco one day but it could be weapons or as you say radiological material or even people the next day so that channel represents a real national security threat you are absolutely correct and that's why governments should pay attention to people who are moving goods and people across borders because if they can move anything that is innocuous they can also move anything that is deadly that is lethal and if governments are unwilling and unable to have a proper screening system proper intelligence generating system it can eventually cripple national security so really if we're able to cut off or to limit illicit trade then we could help to stop some source of funding for terrorist groups yes terrorist groups thrive flourish survive based on the money that they can raise based on illicit movement of material and people terrorist groups if we really want to paralyze a terrorist group if we want to cripple a terrorist group if we want to dismantle a group then we have to target their sources of revenue and illicit trade is the king of terrorist revenue right now now prof i've been talking about this for a little while but I'd really like to get your thoughts on is this happening in a particular region you gave some examples before about North America and and Southeast Asia is it a worldwide thing is it limited to particular regions or what do you see as the spread of of illegal trade and the link to terrorism financing illegal trade is a global phenomenon and I will very quickly go through the different regions we already spoke about North America but I want to tell you that in Africa both in east and west africa we are seeing the movement of drugs we are seeing from uh, afghanistan opium is moving to the east coast of africa and from tanzania kenya or the, co- the coastal regions of mombasa we are seeing the movement of drugs into africa and they go up to south africa and from south africa the drugs are shipped to rotterdam Uh, in Holland and then it's distributed in Europe and the terrorist uh, networks are very much involved in it we have also seen uh, similarly drugs coming from cocaine coming from uh, latin america south and central america moving to the west coast of africa and we are seeing once again the terrorist groups and the criminal networks are working to move uh, cocaine to europe especially southern europe both by sea and other routes so africa is emerging as a as a epicenter of international terrorism and that is why it is so important for western nations not to withdraw from africa but to work with african law enforcement and other military and law enforcement units to strengthen africa if you look at the middle east for a long time the group known as Islamic state or ISIS especially during the time of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi the long time leader of this group he sold petroleum and petroleum products to various figures in Turkey 
and elsewhere. So you can see again movement of oil. Uh, let's look at globally. At globally, we are seeing terrorists are moving weapons. I'll give you one very important example, which I personally investigated from uh, a company in Ukraine. The a terrorist group was able to buy 50 tons of TNT wow. and 10 tons of RDX, which is a plastic explosives. And uh, from the Black Sea port of Nikolaev, a terrorist ship called Yahata moved this uh, out of the Black Sea, uh, coming into around Africa and into the Asian region. Now, what is interesting is that when Yahata moved to the port where they are going to uh, move the goods, they changed the name. So Yahata became, they erased the first name and the last name of the ship. So Yahata became Ahat. So the Indian security and intelligence services, they were tracking this vessel. But I want to tell you that the movement of arms, ammunition, explosives is a global phenomenon. And I think that we all have to work hard. We have to train our military forces, our law enforcement, our intelligence services to a very high extent to detect, disrupt and dismantle their infrastructure. Then let me very quickly go to cultural artifacts. We have seen Palmyra was destroyed by Islamic yes. State or ISIS, but they moved so much of antiquities out of Syria to the Western world to generate money. Let me quickly go back to Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, the first military wing leader was a man called Abu Ubaidah. He was succeeded by a man you know, known as Abu Hafs or Muhammad Atif, who supervised the 9-11 attack uh, with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. When Abu Ubaidah was operating in Africa, because Al-Qaeda was based in Khartoum, Sudan from 91 to 96, Bin Laden was living there. And I want to share with you that Abu Ubaidah drowned in Lake Victoria because he was buying diamonds, other gemstones, and moving it. And in fact, they looked for his body for days and days because they want to recover the gems <laughs> that he was carrying. So I want to share with you that these threat groups, they engage in trafficking illicit movement of goods and material. Finally, let me tell you that human smuggling is also illicit movement, right? And we have seen that terrorist groups have used a ship called uh, Princess Eastbury that went to Canada. Terrorist groups have used uh, another merchant vessel called Sunsea to move people. More recently also we are seeing some very lucrative business because a threat group can move twenty to $40,000 for smuggling one person to Canada. Right. So I think that there should be more focus, there should be more specialist units established within FIUs, the financial intelligence units, and also intelligence services have to focus on threat finance. Just don't look only at financial intelligence. Look at threat finance, what enables these groups, what makes these groups powerful and strong, then start to erode and cut the flow of finance and resources to these groups. 
because a well-funded terrorist group is not just capable of more sophisticated attacks or more attacks, but also recruiting more people because they can pay wages or stipends to those individuals, as well as things like set up alternative headquarters and safe houses and those sorts of things. So the finance really is a dangerous part of the, the operational puzzle, isn't it? You are absolutely correct. And I want to share with you an example. In the 1990s, when I was living in the UK, I visited France and Belgium and Germany. And I was told that the PKK or the Kurdish Workers' Party, they were having office. They were operating through a front cover and sympathetic organizations, taking the face of welfare groups, community organizations, human rights organizations. But this was actually a terrorist group that was in, that was operating in Europe. And at one point, the French came to their office. The French took everything in that office, including carpets, <laughs> curtains, their desks. So I asked the French, why did you do it? He said, oh, we do it because that will demoralize them. So I think that when a terrorist group members, supporters don't have money to eat, don't have office to work, they get very demoralized. So, but some European countries didn't do that. They, in fact, arrested them and released them on bail. Right. So different countries have different standards of dealing with threat finance. And I think that we should hunt them relentlessly so that they will leave this organization. Because if there's no money, then people don't want to be in that organization and support that organization. That is human psychology. So I think that we have to share our knowledge with governments, work together with governments, present these case studies so that we will have a robust response against terrorist groups that kill, maim, injure civilians and others. And really focus on dismantling those groups has to come at the stake of taking away their finances. Because as you say, removing their finances really breaks apart the, the group. If you arrest someone and release them on bail, they can go back to operating the next day. And we've seen that all around the world. Absolutely. And we have seen that some countries have now developed legislation to seize their assets. So if you take their property, whatever they have ill-gotten, whatever they have uh, built based on illicit mm. trade and other methods of financing themselves, that is the best punishment we can give them. And in fact, we will be saving so many lives, attacks on people and attacks on property if we can do this. So I think that on the legal and policy side, we have to work with the departments of justice. We have to work with parliaments. We have to work with the legal draftsmen to develop these capabilities, meaning very far-reaching legal framework so that the terrorists have no chance of raising, storing, moving and disbursing money and other resources. So one one message I'd like to put out to law enforcement agencies and, and intelligence agencies and indeed customs and border security is that if a good is being smuggled, it doesn't really matter so much what the item is. Um, it, it's the channel, it's the transfer that is of concern. And even a good that might seem poses no harm today could well be financing terrorism. 
but it also might just be creating a channel, a, a transfer method between two places that can then be used for more harmful goods in the future or indeed people. Uh, so what, what would your message be to those law enforcement agencies and, and border security agencies around the world? What, what can they do better to help address this? The law enforcement agencies should work with two partners. One is they must work with military because military is now developing capabilities in threat finance. They understand these groups, what are their assets and how they accumulate funds. So with the military intelligence or defense intelligence, they should work. They should work also with the wider law enforcement community where they have again mapped these groups, the personalities, their networks, their cells. Then they also have to work with the the wider intelligence community, not only the, in their own country, but regional countries and outside. For example, Oscanucus NZ or the Five Eyes, they have developed a superb capability. Uh, on threat finance. It was developed largely with the assistance of NTFIU, uh, the New Scotland Yard agency, a man who I had worked for many years. And I want to tell you that if we understand the groups, the individuals, the methods, the sources, then we can equip those border agencies better, the customs, immigration agencies. So it's a partnership. It's not only a multi-pronged, multi-dimensional, multi-agency response, but it's also a multi-jurisdictional and a multi-national response. Now, the part that I didn't tell you is that if you really want to cripple a group, don't only work with government, also work with the banking and the financial community. Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, in Singapore, there are 5,000 banks and financial institutions. More than someone serving in the law enforcement services, the detection of terrorist finance can be made by those who are in the banking and the financial sector. So, we have to train their analysts without asking them just to send a STR, you know, suspicion, suspicious transaction report. We can ask them to do the analysis and send the preliminary report so that intelligence and law enforcement and military can look at this data more accurately and more precisely and take action. So all this requires very significant capability building. And that's why I have always urged you to conduct courses in countering the financing of terrorism and also money laundering, anti-money laundering courses so that we can better equip both government and the private sector so that we can address this challenge. Because is most of the money being transferred by traditional banking systems, by normal banks, or is it moving into cryptocurrency and some of those other shadier currency types? Terrorist groups use multiple sources and methods. For instance, we know of more recent cases where they have used the regular banking system wherever there is a banking infrastructure. But where there is no banking infrastructure, they will just carry the money in a bag. Right. And they will they are very well equipped to do hawala, what is called the undial transfers, where the money is actually not moving but the money is stored and then uh, someone sends a message, look, give this man $5,000 or 
$10,000, $20,000. And later, at the end of the year, the two money uh, changes discuss and they settle their um, dues. So I think there's a range. But as you mentioned crypto, I want to tell you that terrorist groups are using crypto. And we have to work with the governments and work with the private sector in this. Let me give you just one example. Baharum Naim, who was the financial and the external uh, operations coordinator uh, in the Southeast Asian region. He planned to hit the Marina Bay Sands in Singapore. He mounted numerous attacks in Indonesia. And his wife said that Baharum Naim is dead. So everyone started to believe her. When I said, no, he's not dead. Because I was looking at his account. It's a very small transaction of 10 to $20. Very small amount. From that, we knew that he had faked his death because he didn't want to get droned. So I want to share with you that terrorists are certainly using cryptos and it is important for governments to build the capabilities to monitor these transactions so that it will bring not only knowledge of targeting the financial infrastructures of their groups, but also generate invaluable intelligence. I'll just give you one example. Say, if I know, let's take Chris, who is producing this podcast. If I know the banking and financial details of Chris, I will be able to tell whether Chris is taking any medication, right? I will be able to tell whether he likes to drive fast. <laughs> I will be able to tell what kind of clothes, his favorite brand. I'll be able to tell even the type of food that he likes to eat. I will be able to tell even what time he wakes up in the morning and switches his light, you know. So I think that if we know someone's financial profile, someone's financial details, it's an invaluable source of information and intelligence. So this capability has to be built, this capability has to be refined, and this capability, the financial battle space, should be as important as the physical and the information and the cyber battle space. So it, it sounds to me like we have a lot of training to do. We, we need to get some training out to law enforcement, to border security, to banks, to, to anyone who might be involved in the transfer and identification of, of terrorism financing. I think we'll be busy, Prof. Yes, I'll give you just one example. For every terrorist attack, there are 14 indicators and we have to share with the banks those indicators, signs and clues. For example, if a terrorist group want to mount an attack, they will do propaganda, they will do recruitment, they will do fundraising, they will do communications, they will do safe houses, they will do procurement. Right? All these will generate a signature. Then training, initial surveillance, final surveillance, rehearsal, they will also do multiple identities, forged, adapted, and fraudulently obtained identities. All this involves money, you see. So our colleagues, our, our counterparts in the banks and the financial institutions, we have to tell them what to look out for. What are the clues? What are the signs and indicators in four stages? The collection stage, in the movement stage, in the dispersal stage, 
and in the storage stage. If we can share with the banking and financial community, they will do a superb job. But if we are unwilling to share and build trusted networks, then all that intelligence will be lost. Because it is a two-way street, isn't it? We can't just expect banks to share information with intelligence agencies and police and not give back, not give them the skills and the training and the insight to know what to look for. And as you said, that the banks have their own internal analysis capability. They can they can do more than send suspicious transaction reports. They can send more detailed analysis of something that might be of concern that would shorten the investigative time frame very quickly. Yes, I hope you'll be able to train the banks <laughs> and financial institutions. But let me let me also uh, add to that. That is the more we invest, more we create those trusted networks in the banking and the financial community, the more efficient and more capable they will become. So my plea to you is equip them, train them, make them like Spider-Man or like superhero <laughs> or Wonder Woman where they can they can do the front end, you know. So that corp, we have to move from what is called counter-terrorism cooperation to collaboration and partnership. That means having common databases, exchanging personnel, uh, joint training, joint operations, sharing of experience, expertise and resources. There's a lot we can do to build that side of the house so that we will give a good fight against terrorists. So I have to put a plug in here. So any banks that are listening out there, if you'd like some training, reach out to Crime Stoppers International and we'll boost your capability in this space uh, and, and link you up with your local law enforcement agencies to, to work more collaboratively and closer. So Prof, what are the final messages? What would you like to leave our listeners with? What do they need to pay attention with? Firstly, uh, the battle space is not only the physical battle space. The financial battle space is important. We have to create these capabilities within government, law enforcement, military intelligence, and also the banking and the financial community. This is the most important. Second is, we have to develop specialists, or what we call experts, in threat finance. It's not, no longer, it's just financial intelligence. It is understanding the uh, infrastructure of the group, not only the amount of money that they have. And that's why I think the event that you're going to host soon on uh, illicit uh, trade and terrorism is so important because it explains a dimension that most banks, financial institutions, and even government agencies, both authorities, law enforcement authorities, intelligence services, do not understand. They're not doing their best. So I think that there should be a stream of training programs. And the third is we have to raise what is called specialist understanding and public awareness. Because as long as we raise public awareness and also within government, if we can raise specialist understanding, then we can paralyze, cripple, decapitate, eliminate these groups that pose 
national and international security threat, both to governments and to humanity. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Prof. That's that's all we have time for. It's really been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, as always. Uh, it's an honor to hear from your experience, to hear your case studies and your examples. I, I want to thank you on behalf of, of everyone for everything you do to make our world a safer place. Uh, we're all very grateful for your ability to share your expertise, uh, your, your tips, your amazing books that you continue to publish. So thank you so much for your time and thanks for everything you do. Um, it, it's been great to have you here, Prof. Thank you, Shane. Uh, I also want to thank you. I also want to tell you the future generations will be very grateful if you can get Crime Stoppers to, to work on this topic. This is a main national security threat. And if we can build these capabilities, we will make the world a safer place. Thank you. Prof, I think it's a, it's a fool who doesn't listen to your advice. So I will, uh, I will certainly be doing that. Thank you so much. Exposing the Illegal Empire from Crime Stoppers International, supported by JTI. Please follow and rate on your podcast app. To find out more about any of the subjects featured in our podcast, please visit theillegalempire.com and check us out on Twitter at Empire Illegal. Empire Illegal.